0: Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom.
1: Today, we are with Wasa Malik. He is with Aldridge Wealth Management, um, who is a private lender in all 50 states in America, as well as Canada. So I wanted to thank you so much for joining us, Wasa. We tend to jump right into this. Why don't we just start off with your craziest real estate story or experience and just get into it.
2: All right, man. I'm the slowpoke. I talk a lot. (laughs) I don't get right into it. I talk for good 15 minutes.
0: (laughs) So this is a little
2: different, but that's all right. I like it this way too. Thank you for uh, having me today, both Matt and Tim. I appreciate it. Uh, A little bit about the company. Yeah, we're private lenders. We're lending towards uh, mortgages. We typically service deals where banks are not servicing uh, certain clients. That's where we come in. So my journey started in uh, Canada, Toronto, Ontario specifically. We started lending out there. Uh, We've done over 50 million bucks on books uh, in that Ontario region so far. And we wanted to expand into the US market. So I officially launched this fund um, in January of this year. And now we're just trying to lend as much as we can.
0: So with that, I mean, obviously you guys are doing loans. I'm sure there's some interesting stories. If you don't mind sharing a story about essentially either experience that you had, you know, creating a loan or maybe a loan gone wrong. What what, what kind of experiences have you had in doing these types of loans?
2: Uh, yeah, we can talk about two different ways. Uh, we
0: can, yeah,
2: I can give you scenarios <laughs> of some. Amazing deals, like cool stuff that we've done. Uh, yeah. I can also share some really crazy stuff that goes on. Uh, which do you want to hear, the good or the bad first? Where we uh, leave let's that? let's
0: hear one good, one bad,
2: okay. and let's start. Okay. With, let's start with the good. Okay, uh, one of the good ones is uh, we had an opportunity to lend on a private uh, airport. Airports. And uh, that Mm. was pretty cool. Uh, So there aren't very many airports that will come for mortgage financing anyways, because a lot of them will have enough money anyways. Uh, But there are a lot of smaller local uh, airports, which you've never even heard of because and those are mainly used by private uh, private planes anyways. Uh, So one of the deals came by. I checked it out. And during it was a phase when I was trying to get licensed. Uh, to fly a plane. This was in Toronto area. I was trying to get licensed over there and uh, it was pretty cool. The deal just came by. Great coincidence. I wanted to check it out. I know a lot of lenders are not interested in properties as such uh, just because how how are you going to exit it if something goes wrong? So I get all of, all of that. But this was a property where I felt okay if somebody, if, if if even if there is trouble, at least I will be in the industry. I can learn how to take over a property such as that and run the operation, God forbid, if the deal goes down south. So that was the coolest uh, deal that we had uh, worked on. an airport, so I got to learn a lot of uh, details about landings, uh, about takeoff as well. Uh, I learned a whole bunch about the back end work Mm. that airports have to go through. So that was just an amazing experience, at least I think so, because I I love planes.
1: Uh That's That's cool. cool. I'm sure that's awesome because you you mentioned that you are getting your pilot's license. So I mean, the the alignment there must've been really cool.
2: It was a beautiful coincidence. So I had just passed (laughs) my written test. Mm -hmm. So I I just passed it. I think it was within a week's time. Uh, I had already done about three hours of my in-flight training. And and we get to get uh, trained on the two Cessna engine planes. So those are not your crazy Boeing 757s or any of that stuff. Everything is manual in those planes. It's just so cool. The, The experience is surreal. Uh, it was a cool experience, man. I loved it.
0: That's so awesome, man. Congrats. That Thank is a you. really cool thing. Yeah.
2: So let's talk well, let's about a one. Let's get to the darker one.
1: side now. Yeah, 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 Let's talk about a bad one.
2: Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm sure you know there's a lot of fraud that happens all over the place. And it's not just in the mortgage industry or the lending industry. It's in every industry. Uh, so there was a fraud uh, for title that came in. So what that means is... Title fraud would be you own the property, so you own the title to your property pretty much. Uh, So there was a deal that came in. Properties free and clear, no mortgage, fully paid off. Uh, The individual that applied wanted half a million dollars on it. It was a super low loan to value, probably I'd say maybe 45 ish. Looked amazing. Uh, We had approved the deal, the borrower signed it, and we instructed it now. Now it's sitting with the lawyers. Uh, and the reason why we're supposed to have good, strong uh, lawyers is so they can do all the background due diligence and make sure everything is legit. So I get a call from my lawyer um, and he tells me, so the borrower came in to sign and something doesn't seem right here. And this is the news that he's getting from another lawyer, from the borrower's uh, solicitor. And they are just not comfortable with the IDs that were presented. What was wrong with the IDs, I asked. So everything... Looked amazing on it. It's just the quality of the card was a bit thicker than all of our driver's licenses. So that was the first red flag. It didn't make sense. The individual didn't seem confident that he owned the property either as per the interview that the uh, the solicitor had. So all this information is coming back to us and it's not making sense. Uh, We applied for title insurance because we have to. We always get it uh now they started doing more due diligence as well so by the end of it i think uh some tests some uh, i don't know what uh verifications they conducted and we found out that was all fake ids so somebody fake was coming to apply for the loan so the authority authorities were notified Uh, i'm not sure what happened with that individual but the broker who submitted the deal they were questioned heavily like what happened how do you know this borrower uh, mm-hmm. But we got lucky because we never ended up lending on it. But these are some of the real dangers that happen in the industry. And we got to be careful. Wow. Uh, I would have been cool. like half a million bucks down. Like, can, can you imagine when the actual owner of the property comes in and realizes, hey, I've got a mortgage on my property that I had paid everything off on, right? So imagine what they would go through once they figure all of this out, that somebody applied. It wasn't me. Like, can you imagine that chaos?
0: Totally. And having to deal with that. And it's crazy that you bring this story up because on a, not that far, like, like I think it was like last week or week before we interviewed a guy that had to deal with an FBI investigation for a similar thing that happened with his clients. So just wild, man. And so glad your attorneys caught it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's it's so bizarre how some people are so brave to do pulls, pull stuff like this off.
0: I was just going to say, because that owner, I mean, they're going to have to fight for, who knows, years maybe if they'll ever get the money back. And then you're running a fund, correct? So essentially that, that money's gone from you too um, until the title insurance kicks in. And
2: it's a lengthy process with insurances anyways. You're a few months out. But we we got lucky. We got lucky there.
0: Beautiful. Crazy, man. So that what we'd like to typically dive into now is... And this this might run right in the story is essentially like what was what were you expecting when you got in the industry and then what was it actually like as far as being in private lending
2: so i actually started as a mortgage broker first um i wasn't a lender i was just brokering deals out to banks and then there was a point when i realized that private lending would become such a lucrative business um, so I, I started getting into that but i was still brokering deals to other private lenders. And there was a point I finally started with my own fund. Uh, It was a lot of work. Uh, I'm just saying it within 10 seconds, I started my fund uh, with 10 million bucks at the age of 28. Easier said than done, because I went through a lot just to get to that. And that would have expanded so much. Uh, Hey, when I first started my journey from being a mortgage broker to a lender, I spoke to one of my mentors, uh, who's also a lender in the industry, and I've learned a lot from him. I asked, I told him, hey man, I'm, uh, I'm going to be a lender now. Life is going to be easy because for mortgage brokers, it's tough out there, man. And he just laughed in my face mm-hmm. and he said, you know what, Wasif? You think that life of a mortgage broker is hard? There's a lot of lender competition to welcome and you wait and watch. And man, it's been a tough journey. Just grabbing business, competing, uh, offering the best terms possible. And we've all, always got to change our products too, depending on the market conditions as of what's happening right now that we're noticing in the market. But hey man, it's, we're always learning, uh, it's a lot of hard work, but if you're focused, you put your mind to it, uh, you, you can get there, we can all get there.
1: That makes a ton of sense. Um, so you mentioned that you started off as a mortgage broker and you transitioned into a lender. Correct. So like what kind of mindset shifts did you have to go through in order to make that transition?
2: So, uh, sorry, I'm just thinking how I can answer this question best. Uh, I was always a very motivated child. Uh, so I never really had struggled with that idea of how am I going to find motivation to do bigger and better things. That was just instilled in me. Uh, the values that my parents have put into me, it just had, it was always like that. I can't explain it. It's just always like that. I'm programmed mm-hmm. that way. That's how my mind works. There's no giving up, there's no not working hard. It's just not an option. It doesn't exist in my books. Uh, so I've always been at it. I started as a mortgage broker, but the the irony there was too, I was learning how banks actually underwrite their deals at the back end when you submit. So I would actually sit at my desk before even inputting deals on all these softwares that we have to submit deals. I sit with my paper pen, run all the calculations manually. I used to actually prepare a whole file for submission based on how banks underwrite their deals and my deals would get approved. And that's just how it functioned. And then I reached a point, I, I was about 25 years old. Uh, and at that point I had decided, you know what? Everybody wants to hire me, all the banks as their underwriter, but I don't wanna do that. Uh, I'm not an underwriter for a bank. I don't wanna make 60, 80,000 bucks a year and that's it. Uh, I don't think underwriters make 60, 80,000 to be honest. I was making more as a broker, uh, but it just clicked in me that if all these lenders want to hire my services as an underwriter, I should be lending money on my own because I can't. Mm. Uh, so
1: uh, yeah, <laughs> there but you go. I have to
2: learn a lot first, too, on how lending actually works. Uh, so that's that's where the idea came in. And of course, you know how it is. You can't do it when you tell everybody, oh, you can't do it. It sounds too big. <laughs> but mm. yeah, uh, yeah, but you don't let any masonry <laughs> stop you. Right. That, that, that's the biggest key. Just because you could, For you sure. didn't want to do it, doesn't mean I cannot do it. You keep pushing, totally. You plug in away, and if you have the if you have the right strategies, you can get there.
0: And tenacity, mm-hmm. right? So let's break into some of the how. So essentially, you've determined you want to do it, and when you're a lender, you're doing one of a couple of things. And correct me if I'm wrong on this: you're raising money from investors since you're starting a fund, and then you're picking the types of loans that you want to give out. And then you're having to provide returns to the investors that are giving you the money. Is that, is that accurate?
2: That's accurate, yes. So a lot of our funding is not just from investors. We, I put in my own mm. capital. Uh, it's a large bulk of it is my family holding, which is uh, my father primarily. It's a lot of his money that goes in, a few of my uncles, aunt, one aunt, sorry, and a bunch of wealthy friends I grew up with. So we pool our money together and we lend it out.
0: Beautiful. Okay, cool. So there's some nice family relationships. And so there's a lot of trust that's inherently built in this.
2: A mortgage broker, uh, you know what kind of products exist out there and what kind of stuff banks are not lending on. And that makes you wonder why they're not lending on it. Uh, but that that's going to come with experience once you start understanding how lending works. And why is it that banks are not going to lend on certain things? And can you lend on it safely? So. Once you start developing programs, you start doing that research. That's the most important thing, uh, before you launch anything, right? You've got to do that product development. Does that product actually make sense in the market? Is there a need for it? If there's no need for it, then maybe it's not a good idea. Uh, maybe it is, eh, who knows, but if there, there there was a strong need for private lending, uh, because there are deals like for self-employed folks that banks are shying away from because they're not declaring it on their taxes but they actually make decent money. They can show it with deposits. They're fine folks. Uh, There could be scenarios where it's a fix and flip project, right? Banks are not lending on inhabitable properties, but it's a very lucrative opportunities for investors. So they've got to fundraise money from somewhere. So that's a great product that we thought. Uh, A lot of folks, mortgage lenders don't like getting into business loans because it's a bit of it could be unsecured, but we came up with a product where we are securing business loans against assets. So it won't be fully unsecured. It is secured against assets such as accounts receivables, but so we're offering short-term lending again. So again, we had, I, I went and did all the product research in the market, and we felt that there's a need for business loans as well, short-term.
0: So let's dive into how you came to some of these. And I know this might be proprietary, and if you don't want to share, feel free. But essentially, you have to determine your risk and where all of these really smart banks have determined through all of their strategists, this doesn't make sense for us. You're going into that. So you essentially are the pioneer of understanding risk against reward, those types of things. How did you guys come to your calculations? Like, What sort of research did you and how did you feel comfortable knowing exactly what rates to charge and how to structure the deals?
2: Right. So rates are dependent on what the Feds are charging, how much money somebody can borrow, how much money banks are lending at. So we're typically going to be higher than your banks, for obvious reasons, because we're taking on a higher risk than banks. The way we develop product is we have to figure out where, I guess in a deal, well, first of all, let me take a step back. A lender, the very first thing he or she will look at when they see a deal is where are all the gaps in that deal. Where can things go wrong? How can I recover my money if things were to go wrong? That's the first question we ask. Even if the file is amazing, even if Mr. Bill Gates is applying for a loan, a lender will always look at what if somebody defaults, how am I going to recover my assets? that's, that's primary lending for you. Once we figure out where the gaps are, we can figure out, okay, how can we calculate that risk? If the conventional mortgage right now, for example, is go, uh, going at 6%, uh, we're gonna take a higher risk and we'll charge maybe 8% or maybe 9% to carry that risk. But then we have to, the second part of that underwriting is coming up with the exit strategies. In case they default, how can I exit this loan? Uh, and majority of the times it ends up going uh, well, majority of the times I find borrowers are cooperative and they will bring their arrears up. It's a rare chance if, if the deal ends up going into foreclosure. But we always underwrite a deal based on things going completely down south and how to recover money. And then you've got to do your full research. That, that's part of your uh, program development. Uh, so you're going to look at all the research. How many people fail in, for example, a fix and flip project? Why do they fail? How, what can you do to combat that risk on your uh, risk analysis sheet? So thanks to Potter. Totally.
0: Yeah. So earlier you had mentioned that there you kind of had an expectation that being a lender would be easy. And then recognize it comes with its own set of problems. What I've recognized in business is that, that that's true across the board. Every business has its problems. But some businesses' problems are much more enjoyable than others for, for a person, like based on their personality, so on and so forth. Being on the lending side, what what sort of problems have you faced? And do you enjoy those problems more than, say, being a broker?
2: I guess it's not just about which parts of it I enjoy. Uh, mm. You can't enjoy every part of your job. There's no way. There's some parts you're not going to like, but you do it. Well, I do it because the pay scale is decent. But it comes with a lot of stress. Uh, mm-hmm. So... The underwriting part, I don't focus too much on that because we've got staff now that underwrites for us. So I've given them a parameter. This is what I want to see on paper. And if, if it all checks out, then I'll approve the deal. If it doesn't, then of course you decline it. That's the part I like the least, the underwriting mm-hmm. part, because it's so time consuming. That's the only reason, mm-hmm. it's very time consuming. And I feel like once you, I can outsource that to my staff, I can focus on actually business development as a whole looking at it as a whole, a holistic picture of how we're gonna expand.
0: So just to recap it, so essentially the, the time-consuming underwriting, being in the details, while that was the thing that actually got you to become a lender, because it's what allowed you to recognize that I can do this, it's the first thing that you wanted to get out of when you started the business.
2: That's correct. That is correct. How fun. And I love meeting people, so originating deals, I love I love being out there. I love uh, presenting. That's how we met as well. When we when I was presenting, uh, so that that's, that's that's the most fun mm-hmm. part. Meeting all sorts of people. And it's a great learning experience too because when somebody applies uh, as a business owner, I get to learn so much details and insights into so many different industries and how they operate. And I also get to meet amazing like all sorts of people from every industry. Like, I have I know politicians. I've lent money to politicians. Um, mm. Like, you get to meet all sorts of people. It's just amazing. I,
1: I love that you mentioned that you get to meet all sorts of people, like, at several different points, right? So, obviously, it seems to me, Wasa, that networking is important to you. So, like, what kind of networking strategies do you use uh, to grow we your We first business?
2: started with uh, reaching out locally to accountants, reaching out to... Uh, real estate agents, uh, reaching out to mortgage brokers, reaching out to business owners, just one-on-one. I, I, I'm I a walking, talking billboard, right? So if I go into a grocery store, I'm talking about my product. Hey, you need money? If you're rich, you still want more money. If you're poor, you need money. So it, it's just a great commodity, right? Uh, it's a good conversation starter as well. Uh, you need money? I can hook you up. It's like, what do you need? How? How much money? Mm-hmm. A million
1: bucks? <laughs> that, 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 that's a fantastic conversation starter because almost everybody's <laughs> going to say yes to that question.
0: Exactly. They might not and need it, it but they
1: want it, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: hey, I want some money too. And you're getting it by letting it out, oh, which is funny. Is like the, the analogy that I've heard right. is is you know what animal's at the top of the food chain, right? It's the eagle and what logo's at the top of every bank, right? It's, it's always the eagle, so... Yeah, you're, you're doing it right. I mean, there's a reason that banks are the biggest buildings in the country, generally speaking.
2: Yeah. And we do, so. you know, I get inquiries from some large investors as well that, hey, Wassey, why don't we just uh, build our own institution like a bank? Uh, there are a lot of licensings for it, especially in Canada. The U.S. is still a lot easier in terms of getting 5 uh, your licenses to even build a small credit union if you want. Uh, but... It, You know, yeah, we can borrow borrow from all over the place. We can borrow from Bank of Canada, for example, if we're in Canada. We can borrow from the Feds, too, in the U.S. But then you're, it's it's not a bad gig because your interest rates are low, but you're actually making money on volume because the bank is when a bank is giving out a mortgage. Well, they used to give it out at three percent. Now it's jacked up, but they're just making money on volume. They're not going to close. $50 $50 million worth of deals. They're not going to close 100 million. They're going to close billions of dollars worth of deals. So they make money on the volume. So it's not a bad gig. I just don't want to get into it uh, because we mm. are already servicing a need that is very lucrative right now.
0: Well, and it's really nice. Like businesses, when you, when you niche down, 50%. it's, it's just a great way of. Yeah. yeah.
2: So let me ask you folks, great how intent. did y'all start into real estate? Cause. We're all young, uh, but I always want to know from folks, when you were young, how did you find the motivation mm-hmm. to stop partying and start getting serious about work? Like, how did that transition look for you folks?
0: Well, I grew up as a little church boy. So, uh, oh, man. I, uh, I, partying was not in my vocabulary, but I actually was a math teacher. And then, so essentially from there, I went to uh, B2B sales, And then I was so trapped in the corporate world that I had to find a way out. I had to find a way to to be able to invest. So I started investing in real estate, which is what led me out.
1: I love that you asked us the question. I think you were the first person to do that so far. So props to you. Um, That's awesome. Um, I'm second generation real estate. So my old man's been selling houses since 84. Um, I originally got started. He fixes and flips us a lot. Um, So I originally started helping him. Um, I started at the ground level. Right. Eventually, I was managing his projects. So you know, I've been a part of over a hundred fix and flips. I think I've managed thirty five ish total um, from just me, um, but including what I've done with my dad, um, over a hundred easily. I, mean, I don't even have a number anymore. When I was younger, I used to like be like, we flipped that one, we flipped that one, we flipped that one, like just driving around. Because like Hanover Park, I don't know, you're kind of familiar with this area, we literally did like 20 in Hanover Park, yeah. almost all in the same subdivision. So like, it's like that was our subdivision, it felt like. Every house that went on the market, we bought it, we flipped it. Um, so that's kind of where I got it started. Um, my actual retail career took a little bit longer to take off. Um, from that role, I transitioned into REOs. Yeah. So I was working with a big REO broker from 2015 to 2017. Um, and we were doing hundreds of transactions a year, just REOs. That was it. We were focused on that. And then after that, I did the mortgage mm-hmm. thing for about 18 months. And then okay. that's and when how I transitioned full-time it? in real estate. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I love Yeah. I didn't know this about you. You've completed so many of these projects, 35 yourself and 100 with your dad. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so 2016, I was doing fix and flips full time. We did 25 that year. Um, So that was all I did was acquisitions, project management, and then I would hand it off to somebody else to sell it because I was just, I mean, I can only do so much, right? Um, (laughs) So yeah, we did 25 that year. Um, We did 25 that year. And, and, you know, honestly, if I could go back in time, Mm -hmm. if I still had access to that kind of money, I probably could have did 50, possibly even more than that because like we weren't our strategies for acquisitions were not super well refined at that time. We we're doing a lot of auction.com and stuff like that, which used to work a lot better than it does. Now, I haven't seen anything good on there recently. But but like off market strategies, man, if I had access to that information in 2016, sure. I could have doubled Yeah, my So j- just
2: to probe something off of what you said. So somebody that has completed almost 30 projects in about three years, we even can help lend almost 100% on the purchase price to those folks who've got Superb experience. So, 100 percent of the purchase price, 100 percent of the cost of rehab. So that's pretty much full financing. So if you've done stuff like that, hey, I can hook you up with more money.
0: Yeah, uh, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. we've got an yeah. t- 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 investor.
2: We've got an investor who actually he met. He emailed yesterday as well uh, on the kind of stuff he wanted, and he did mention 100 percent loan to value on 30 projects. So pretty much his mandate is if somebody's got an excellent experience in fix and flip, we're willing to be very aggressive on those deals. Regular deals. Yeah. If you've done a few projects, you can get 90 LTV on the purchase price. We'll offer that. But those fix and flip projects are primarily underwritten on the experience. And again, we've noticed that we've done so many construction loans in Canada as well. So we understand when something goes wrong, for example, you have bought the property, but when you dig into it, you notice something else has come up now, which is gonna cost you $10,000 extra. So if you don't have the experience or the money to figure those things out, then guess what? The project gets delayed, it doesn't get complete, now they're behind on payments, and guess what? I've gotta step in somehow, either I take over the project. But the problem in going into a foreclosure on fix and flips is, yeah you can buy a 50 percent complete property when the court tells you you can go sell it you can buy it too but who's gonna buy a a half complete project that's the other problem so it most likely you're gonna have to step in yourself finish Mm -hmm. it up and then sell it and get your money back so it's it's a lot of aggravation as a lender then so that's that's one of the risks right that we have to assess
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah well i mean You're always going to find something. You know, like how much of that repair find, it's going to vary by property, right? But you're always going to find something. There's always something that you didn't see because once you start opening walls up, I mean, it's just, you're going to find something. It's pretty much every single time you're going to find something. Um, So, I mean, um, (laughs) it's um, like the cool thing, like for me is like my A-team, like they'll knock out a $50,000 repair. in in 50 days or less and like that is the standard i have for them it's like if you you get a thousand dollars per day that that's what you get (laughs) and if you can't meet that you know i mean we're gonna have a problem um but i've I've really only been able to do that with my a team and unfortunately teams b and c have not quite ever been able to get up to that level um but cool i mean i'm kind of getting off topic here so let's jump right back into it because you mentioned fix and flip project financing. So, I mean, you brought up 100% financing for people that are well experienced like me. What other projects do you have for people that are potentially newer to the fix and flip model or maybe not quite as experienced as I am? So you'll notice a lot of of, uh, of private private
2: lenders or hard money lenders will not lend to, will not lend on fix and flip projects if somebody's got zero experience. So what we're offering is just to be more competitive we are still going to lend to folks who've got zero experience. Uh, just to combat the underwriting, what we'll do is we'll go with a higher down payment uh, just to make sure the deal's a little secure. There's a little bit of equity and juice in the deal. Uh, consider maybe like 20, 25% down on the purchase price. We can go probably almost 100% on the rehab. The interest rate from 799 is going to jump to maybe $1099 all the way to 1299 depending on how risky the deal is and the points will be about two points just like on any other deal but a typical deal with somebody with experience usually comes out at 799 to 999 uh with two points fee and the rates are going up too so you might even go from 799 the starting point might be 899 but let's see because feds keep increasing the rates
1: all right well that makes a ton of sense um, you mentioned you also wanted to talk about long-term rental property financing. Are, are you talking about creative solutions there or is it more yeah. like so standard? So that's
2: stuff? all, long-term is all 30-year amortization stuff that we're talking about. So we don't ask, so any on any of our mortgage stuff, by the way, I should mention okay. that we do not ask for any income documents. I don't want to see your W-2s. I don't want to see your 1099s. I don't want to see your DNA tests, your blood work, your vaccination record brother, keep all of it to yourself. I don't want to see it. We're lending on the uh, suitability of the property itself. Uh, So on a long-term rental, what we're considering is the rental income that comes in. So it's all, that's what it's based off of. Your debt service ratio has to be 1.1 times at least. And the second portion of the underwriting is based on credit, not so much experience, but the higher the credit, the better terms we can offer. So 720 credit plus, we'll have the best options available with 15% down even. Uh, but as the credit comes starts to come down, we'll do maybe like 20%. Uh, then we'll even get to 25% if need be, depending on how bad the credit may be. Uh, so that's how we structure it. But those programs are fully 30-year amortized. And we try to make the deal work uh, by kind of adjusting the DSR to 1.1 times. By that, what I mean is, uh, you're gonna have a principal plus interest payment in your as your mortgage payment. So if your debt service ratio ends up being higher with that payment than 1.1 times, we can even adjust it to interest only payments. So now your payment will be less. Yes, it'll be interest only, but at least your debt service ratio will be 1.1 times. So it's a little stable deal for first five years, you'll have interest only, and then it'll get switched to principal plus interest. So at least it helps out the borrower pick up the property in that meantime, instead of not getting approval from anywhere. So that, that's one thing. The way we calculate debt service ratio is very simple. You take the rental income of the property, you divide it by your expenses. Your expenses will be your mortgage payment, your property taxes, your insurance, uh, and that, that's how we calculate it. As long as it fits, we're a game. Uh, In terms of getting creative, I should also mention, there are scenarios. We lent on a deal in Florida, for example, uh, that closed just a few weeks ago. And so it was a 19 apartment complex. We lent on it and we're we're going through an odd transition in, in the real estate industry. So the prices are just shooting up like crazy right? It makes no sense how the inflation is, but the rental income has not caught up to that inflation. You'll say, yeah, the rental income is quite high, but it's not as high as how fast your values have jumped up. And also you can't year after year, a landlord cannot just increase your rent by 2000 bucks this month. Uh, There are rules and regulations of how much rent can be increased per year. So folks that have been living in in a property for, let's say five years or even 10 years, Their rents are still very low, but now the values of property values have gone up so much. So it's very hard to align a debt service ratio of 1.1 times uh, because the rental income is not high. So what we try to, what we can accommodate with that is we can offer a bridge loan for 12 months. So now you have the opportunity to borrow, let's say 75 LTV instead of just a 60% LTV based on your debt service. So we're in a bridge loan, we can bypass your debt service ratio. So in that case, for example, the debt service ratio was 0.8 times. So what that means is your expenses on the property were more than how much the rental income is coming in. And this is just for the audience. I know you folks know. Uh, So how, as a lender, you're thinking, how can they make payments to me if they're not collecting enough rent and paying more out of their pocket. So but that's the whole idea. We gave them extra money, prepaid the term, so payments are not an issue. But now they've got one year to stabilize their operation. So now they got can figure out what to do about their tenants. You've got 12 months to figure it out. You bring in new tenants at the right rental market rates and your debt service ratio is going to be aligned now and then we put them into our 30 year amortization programs. So now they were gone from and a bad situation to an okay situation, and then we put them into a great situation by putting them into 30-year M. But there has to be a strategy. I don't just like lending somebody money on a bridge loan if there's no exit strategy. Like, we want, we don't want you paying 9%, 10% to us every year. You should be taking that money. We're just temporary. Bridge loan is just, we're intermediary lenders. We're trying to make sure that you go from a bad situation into a good situation. And there are predatory lenders out there who want you to default, by the way. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about legit, proper lending where you're helping folks go from a bad to a better situation.
1: I love that answer. That was really, really thorough. And I love how you, you're you really good at breaking it down to the layman while you're talking with us. Oh um so i i mean i just wanted to compliment you on that because a lot of people they'll just throw out these terms and they will just assume people realize it but you're really good at catching that in, in defining it as we're going so i mean i just wanted to throw that offhand compliment out there um how about this question what tip tool or strategy do you think has had the uh, most impact on tips? your success? Uh,
2: time management we don't realize uh i i i find uh, that's one of my pet peeves i hate being late I like showing up 10 minutes before my meeting, uh, so I'm not even, like, I'm an early comer to meetings, not even on time, uh, and, and the reason is my day is super packed, and that's that's where I base it off of. I plan my day almost, like, every 15, 30 minutes, so if I've got to get somewhere, I'm going to incorporate how much travel time it takes me from get from one meeting to the other. If there's a 10-minute delay at my first meeting, can I make it up? So I'm on times. And and the reason is, man, they're only 24 hours in a day. Uh, I need about eight to nine hours of sleep every day in order for my mind to work at its optimal uh, level. Otherwise, I feel like I'm a little slow if I don't get enough sleep. And in my field, I feel like my mind is bombarded with numbers and risk analysis. I need to be fresh. So time management really helps Mm -hmm. me with that. One calculation I always... Keep in my mind is I need eight to nine hours of sleep in a day. So I'm already at what, like 12, 13 hours left in a day now, right? Sorry, uh, 24 hours, eight hours of sleep. Okay. Let's say, uh, 16, 16 hours 15 life, right now mm-hmm. we've, we've got to use the washroom, right? A few times yeah. a day. So let's say we, we've got a shower. We gotta, let's take out another two hours for all of these washroom stuff. Right? So we're stuck down to 14 hours. We need to eat three meals a day too, and snack in the middle. Uh, so let's say another three hours gone in food, even though North America's timeline for the amount of time we take to eat is a lot lower than, let's say you go to Europe, you go to Italy, you go to France, everybody's sitting down properly. You're supposed to enjoy your meal for two hours, but that's not how we do it in North America. We, we're we just on the go, pick up fast food. Oh, i got to make money. Oh, we're, we're stressing out. Uh, so now we're down to, let's say, about 14 or 13 hours, right? Uh, after cutting out another three hours of so we're down to 12 hours now i think I'm, I'm i'm not even keeping track of my own math so that's the amount of <laughs> it's time of, up, uh, it's tough to tell the stories uh, and come back I'm, to the math yeah yeah <laughs> so now like then i've got to uh, do gym too cuz i i'm trying to make sure that i'm going to be healthy and I'm, I'm, my body's functioning well so how much hours do we how many hours do we have left really we have barely 10 hours left to complete actual work in a day now, I'm a family man too, so I love spending time with my family. I've got to do that too. So if you've only got eight, nine hours to complete all your work, whew, you better be on point. And majority of us, especially me, I end up going more than eight, nine hours of work in a day. So now it just means I've got to cut my hours from somewhere. So I'm going to not chill with friends. I'll got to take some time off there. From food, so now I'm working and eating at the same time, so I don't have to allocate separate. So it, it gets tricky, and I don't have that much time to sit around and wait for somebody at a meeting. Like I'm here, buddy. Why are you going to be half an hour late? I've got to be somewhere else for another meeting. So I, I feel like when you don't respect
1: uh-huh.
2: your own time, how will you manage everything? It, it's 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 not the best strategy. And hey, there's successful people who are a mess. Yes, there are those no stories out there, but we're not talking about the exception to the rule. We're talking about the masses and how, you know, we can structure our lives better. If you have your time managed, you can complete your tasks on time. That's the first thing, time management. The other thing is, you can't give up. And you've got to be very real about <laughs> your you've got to be real about your about your vision. I know we get emotionally attached to our projects that we're starting. Uh, it's it's our venture, right? Where if there's so much heart and emotion into it. And sometimes mm-hmm. we can't look at things objectively. Like if a strategy is going poorly, it's not working out, it's not materializing into closed deals. That means you've got to change something, right? And how many times are you going to change something for you to realize, hey, maybe this is not a good project. Maybe there's no need for it. And sometimes I think we get emotionally attached to our projects. We don't see those reality so it's good to take a step back so i try to do that and make sure that my strategies are good if i need to change a strategy then at least i can sit back and look at everything so every month to two months and i've stopped doing that now and i i should be getting back on it so thank you for that reminder uh but Mm -hmm. i try to take off yeah 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 uh so i'll take a weekend i'll go drive i won't have a place in mind i'll just keep driving somewhere hotel will come in I'll stop there, stay the weekend. Uh, at the hotel, all I do is order some food. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to meet anybody. Nobody knows where I am, uh, except for my family. But I'll sit there, look at my books, figure out what my strategies are working. It's just a brainstorming session for me so I can get away from work, so I'm not emotionally there. I'm away from my whole environment. I can think clear. So that's another thing that I've that's helped me a lot. Uh, you got to enjoy life too. That that, that really keeps me sane. Because if I'm just working all the time, I can have a million bucks in my account right now. And if I'm not enjoying with that money, why am I doing all of this? The whole point of making money is to become free from all of these stresses. You can do whatever you want, whatever you want. That's the idea. That's the dream.
1: I'm going to dial this back a little bit because you mentioned that you had a mentor earlier. So, I mean, I wanted to get some clarity on, you don't have to be totally specific on who that was. But who do you think has been your most important professional mentor in your career thus far?
2: Uh, I would attribute that to two people. Uh, They've helped me learn lending. So they've given me a different perspective about lending. Uh, You can do the typical lending. Yeah, this property is like this, blah, blah. blah. But uh, because of the way they used to look at deals, I've kind of incurred all of that inside, inside my mind too. And having a mentor really helps put things into perspective because they've got experience to back it up. Whereas you're gonna sit there, have a question, be nervous about it. Should I lend on this? Should I not lend on it? But because they've been through so much, they can help you bypass some of the mistakes that you can potentially make. Uh, and that, I think that help, that advice is valuable. I, I, I don't know if you can put a dollar figure to that kind of knowledge, uh, but it helps you. So it, it still happens even though I'm an experienced lender now, but sometimes like I'm confused about a deal like, ah, uh, should I do this? I don't know. So I'll call up one of my, uh, one of the two mentors that I have. I'll run the scenario by them and they'll tell me, okay, instead of this, look at it this way. So it, it's just, it helps you move through obstacles a lot easier.
1: 110%. It, it, You don't need to know every answer to every problem as long as you know who to call if you don't know the answer, right? Like, so I I said, I mentioned I'm second generation. I still call my dad all the time. Like, hey, man, what would you do here? Um, (laughs) It's just, it's nice to have somebody to just spitball with because I might have a different opinion from him, but it's nice to hear a second opinion Uh, because 99 times out of 10, he validates what I was going to do in the first place, right? Um, So, I mean, it's awesome to have that type of support. Uh, I'm just going to throw this out here because um, you mentioned it at the meeting where I met you, and it's on the the intake form that we got. So, apparently, you'd love to cook. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Okay, so cooking just uh, is a de-stressor for me, actually. Uh,
1: so I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I mean... That was what I was good at because I love oh, wow. cooking, too. And for me, it is one of the most stress relieving activities yeah. in the world. So get into your answer and maybe I'll tell you why, why I think it's the same thing. So
2: uh, one day it, I just happened to find it miraculously. Uh, a few years ago, I came back from work. I was just mentally exhausted. I had a long month, good month. I think we had done almost $20 million worth of funding in that one month alone. Uh, it was a super busy, uh, no, and then no, so no. much stuff was going wrong that I had to fix. So at the end of the month, I was, just came home, just all pissed off in my mind, uh, just took out a pot. I was like, whatever, man. And I started cooking, and I started de-stressing all of a sudden, because I started enjoying the ingredients that I was putting in, because it's, it's an art. Cooking is an art. An That's art. what it is. It's not a chore for some, it may be, but it's an art for me. So it's, I just feel better. I feel like the world is not so bad. My problems are not that big. Look at this delicious food. (laughs) Uh, So that's just how it is. And now every little while I'll just cook. If I'm having a rough, if I had a rough week, I'll cook something. And I I just get into different cuisines. I'm not into the only one sort of cuisine. And it's just amazing to test out with different spices. Like I know South Indian folks have completely different spices that they use. North Indians will use something different. Arabic spices are totally different. Mediterranean, uh, to be more specific. Uh, Italian spices are gonna be so different. Mm-hmm. But it's so amazing how you can experiment with every little spice, what it can do. And the cooking process makes the difference. And I find if you put in heart and soul and like positivity into your food, it just tastes better for some reason. I cannot explain it, but I think it just has some, some miracle in there. <laughs>
1: Like, cooking for me is literally one of the most stress-relieving activities there is. I actually really love, like, this is probably crazy, but I love to whip up, like, a four-course meal. And the reason I like to do that is because there's a lot of strategic planning, right? Like, I need to start this at this time so it's ready at this time. And I need to start this at this time and so on and so forth. And you mentioned that cooking is an art form. I also think it's, like, a very intimate thing because if you really, really cook right – And you cut a bell pepper and you take the time to take the little white parts out and everything like that. It is a labor of love. Um, And it's just, for me, I have um, ADD and and my mind's always racing. But when I'm cooking, like I am totally focused. And there are very rare moments in my life where I'm totally 100% focused and cooking is one of the things that I found that I could totally get into the zone. And like I said, it's an intimate thing the wife loves it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, um, um, so I digress. I just wanted to get into that because I, I saw it twice from you. And it's like, Oh, this guy must really like to cook. Um, so cool, brother. Yeah. Matt,
2: um, what about you? What, bad, what bad, you
0: Yeah, well, I'll start by connecting into the conversation and saying my stress relieving activity is eating good cooking. So um, I think I would be your guys compliment. Uh, but uh hobbies. Oh gosh. So I have like distant hobbies, and then I have like more hobbies that are close. So like right now, I'm in a phase of life. I have four kids, so my hobbies are generally centered around the kids. So we bought a one acre property and developed the back to have like a huge like soccer field, and so we actually play a game called handball, which is like it's like the ultimate frisbee almost version of soccer, and so we we engage our kids in that with friends. So every Saturday. Pretty much we host about 30 to 60 people at our house where we get to be with our kids and be active. So I love things that are active. Um, I love things that stimulate the mind. So any like listening to books, et cetera. But um, I guess my abnormal hobby when I was a kid was to play a bridge, which is typically a card game played by old ladies. Yeah. What most people don't know is that there's a competitive circuit to bridge, Bill Gates plays bridge, uh, et cetera. So like when you talk about card counting in Vegas, card counting in bridge, in my opinion, is at a next level because you're counting 52 cards per hand, 30 hands per session, two to three sessions per day. And it's one of those things where not only do you have to remember what cards are in what hands, but when they were played, like my dad was like really militant about counting cards. So that we would play three hours. Your brain is just like bulging. And then afterwards, it's like, all right, now it's time to talk strategy. Do you remember in the seventh hand when the third card was <laughs> played? Why did you play this card? And uh, like, I think that exercise for those four or five years that I was very intense with it, like changed the trajectory of my brain power forever. So um, I don't get to play much anymore because obviously I'm raising kids. But but it was huge when I was, you know, high schoolish college. Wasa, so what are you working on building currently? Uh,
2: so our Toronto operation is super solid. Uh, my goal right now is to get to $100 million bucks lent a year in the U.S. So that's been what's keeping me occupied. Uh, we're working very hard, making sure that we're out there, people know about our product. Uh, that That's what's been keeping me busy. But at the same time, I feel... Uh, the more money I make, I feel the more unstable I feel, happiness-wise. Uh, I feel uh, my life has is, has to be big on philanthropy work, so I, I try to do that a lot. And I realized that at a, at a very young age, I was still in high school, uh, that I... Sorry, no, not high school. I was in university. So I realized at that time that I can be... I can have as much money as I can. And I, I and I grew up wealthy. With, my parents are wealthy, so I've never had any money issues. Uh, so, like, my problems have been a little different, I guess you could say, more or less. And for me, what I realized was it gives me peace when my existence can be of benefit to somebody else. And this has nothing to do with religion. I don't equate this to religion. It's just mm-hmm. something that I feel, I feel better about when I'm able to... Help somebody. Because if I'm blessed with a great mind and a great heart, I should be doing something for others before I pass on from this dimension of the world. It's just, gives it keeps me at peace. That's the most important thing for me, peace and happiness. Uh, so I, I'm very big on philanthropy work. I have my own charities called Pharaoh's Hope. Farah is my mom's name, so I named it after her. She's still alive, but I still I wanted her to know that I, she is my inspiration. Uh, so I named it after her. And, and we awesome. give money to uh, physically and or challenged mentally or physically challenged youth between the ages of 16 and 24. Uh, and we help cover soft costs. There are other charities and funds out there that give money for hard costs like medicines or uh, medical equipment. But there's no soft cost uh, funding for it. So what that means is just simply, let's say somebody wants to take, somebody's physically disabled, for example, and they need to take a typing course so they can get a job. That's where we'll step in. There are no fund, there's no funding that can support uh, these supports, uh, these kinds of costs. So we love helping out. So at least somebody can get a job, earn some income. Uh, that's the that's space that we are in in Canada. And I'm trying to, Lots that in the U.S. too. So that's the second thing I'm working on simultaneously.
0: Which ties so per- perfectly into what we love so much. Like the, the podcast for us is all about purpose and freedom. And I feel like to some degree, you can't really have freedom without purpose. And it, and it kind of feels like that's what you're expressing mm-hmm. is like you had some financial freedom, even from young age, because of your family situation but it wasn't until you also found purpose that you became at peace, which is like so exciting to see that you're giving back and that's creating peace, not only for you, but it's obviously creating a huge impact on other people.
2: Yeah. And for me, philanthropy is about measuring the good work that you've done. It's one thing to just give money away Mm. to charities. And I've noticed there's a lot of scam with charities too. So we are a little careful in what, which charity that we give funding to. So every year we try to have about forty to $50,000 fund that we're going to give away to different charities. Uh, and we, we're just trying to make sure that our values align with whichever firm that is that we're going to uh, give funds to, donations to. Uh, but at the same time, it's, we always make it, whenever we, we give funds, we make it a mandate to sit down with their executive team and have a strategy for it. So if we're giving you, let's say, ten thousand dollars, we want to see ROI. ROI is not the money we're going to get back. The ROI is, can you give us a measure of how that money helped a cause? That that's what we're here to see. And if we see a good measurement of it, the next, the following year, we'll still donate maybe a bigger amount too. So that it's that's the key. You can't. It's one thing mm-hmm. I find. And and again, I've heard a lot from people that hey, it's the intention that counts. I get all of that, but I feel. If you've got a strong mind, why not take the extra step and make an influence in a bigger manner? Uh, And if I can look into their details, Mm -hmm. like how much work has been done, how much benefit we've created, that gives me more joy that, hey, my existence has helped even more people. And that that, that vision and that purpose has given me, has kept me sane.
0: Yeah. Well, and... One of the things that I I notice is that typically we have like two states of mind. We have this rational, logical mind, which is more focused on numbers and and words and and context patterns, etc. And then we have this creative mind. And it's like usually when people are operating their creative mind, they they divorce all the logic. And so it's like this. It's like, well, you're, you're doing good because they're in the creative mind. But I think the intersection is where real value comes. Right. It's in it's in the emotions and the creativity backed by like the logic, which then creates essentially like I think what you're doing is tremendous. Like, I think holding your your dollars to a standard, because if nothing else, like you can get two times, five times, ten times the impact by focusing both on the return and just, you know, yeah, I I, I love what you're doing.
2: Thank you. Thank you. We're trying. We're trying to make a difference the best
1: way we can Wassa. obviously anybody listening here um he has some some packages and some programs for you that could be helpful if you're a brand new investor or if you're an extremely experienced investor so if somebody listening today has heard something that they think they need to talk to you about or somebody at your company what is Uh, the best way for them to reach out
2: quick with our responses you know that already tim we try to get back to people for if they submit an inquiry oh, yeah. within one to two hours. We, tr- we, uh, we focus a lot on our customer service. We have eight agents that we've hired already. Uh, you, if you go on our website, AldridgeWealth.com, uh, and maybe you can share that online later on uh, in, in this podcast. AldridgeWealth.com, you can see our Canadian operation, the U.S. operation can apply to with any of the agents that we've hired. Uh, in the US, you can look that up on our website or you can call me direct. I'm at six three zero nine six five five zero four eight or email wasay at Aldridge and we'll get back to you right away. It's our emphasis, it's our mandate mm-hmm. to let you know within hour, two hours on whether we can help you out or not.
1: I say Malik. I wanted to sincerely thank you for being on our show and giving us a glimpse of your life and business. And to everyone else out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, just write down one action that you got from today and make sure to implement that in the next seven days and share it with somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode